Good morning. It's a joy to stand before you. Um, I appreciate so much Shane's kind and gracious introduction of me. Um, being a founding pastor is a great privilege. It also reminds you that you're getting old. <laughs> um, 20 years, the anniversary back in March, I had the privilege to speak with you, and it was a joy to be there at that time. And again, it's a great joy to be invited back to come and encourage you today. And that's my desire, uh, as Paul sent Timothy to the church at Thessalonica, he said, I sent Timothy to encourage and to strengthen you as to your faith. So that's my intent today. So if you'll allow me, um, I'm going to point you to a passage of scripture that we'll look out this morning. And then before we get into the word, I'd like to share a brief testimony with you that I think will help us as we go into this great text. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 through 6, if you'll just hold your Bibles open there, and then in a few minutes, we will arrive at that passage. As you're turning there, I want to say again, on behalf of Rebecca and I, it's a joy to be with you, our family, all back in Charleston and scattered abroad. Um, It's just a joy to, to be here in your presence, to see many of you that we have known for many years, to see your faith being steadfast in the Lord. And many of you that we don't know, to see you come alongside and be a part of this journey here at Faith Community Church. Um, So I'm going to ask a really odd request before I get to preaching the word this morning, if I could. I guess as founding pastor, you start doing odd things. I think that's how it goes. I'm not a grandfather, so I'm starting to do more odd things these days, I've noticed. So I would like to do this. For the sake of Rebecca and I, as we pray for you, and um, as Paul said, on every remembrance of you, I long to see your face. Well, I'd like to get a picture of the congregation just for a moment. Would you allow me to do that? Thank you. Now, would you all scoot into the middle? No, I'm just joking. No, no, I'm just joking with you. All right, so I'm going to try. Oh, I'm doing a selfie right now, and I'm going to fall back on the drums. Um, See, I do weird stuff. Uh, So, all right. I won't ask you to smile because I'm not sure I can see your smile anyway. So, here we go. All right. All right, the weird moment's over, and I am back. That will really serve me well, because we have been praying for you. We pray for you frequently, often, and it's a joy to be able to see your face today. You know, 1995, the Lord put a burden in my heart. Uh, That burden began uh, in my heart about establishing a community of believers who would follow the rule of Christ in all of life and would join together in community. And then in 1996, that burden became a vision. And that vision began to draw other people around this reality that we want to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The intent was to be a gospel-centered people who were committed to live out the gospel in all of life and display the glory of Christ in community to one another and to the world. And so in March of 1997, I think it was 13 families, I might be wrong, but it was around that number of families that said yes to establishing a gospel community called Faith Community Church that was led by a plurality of leaders under the leadership and the rule of Christ. And these principles that were born into my heart in 1995 that began to evolve into a vision are the very same principles that I can share with you today as I stand before you that define who I am. 
So I want you to understand that I stand here not only thankful for what God has done and what he is doing, but I also stand here as a testimony to you of the work of faith in you and the work of faith in me that has continued since we departed from here in 2003. Uh, I have always been delighted to see how multiplication and addition work in the body of Christ. Uh, Seeing disciples, members, leaders come together. Grateful for leaders being added. Joel Teague, Kelly Farabee, before she was Kelly Teague, in my college and career ministry back in the old days. And seeing them being added to the staff and being a part of this leadership. And as Shane said, just knowing Shane and Tara, even before they were married, then Randy and Kay Cook and Tim and Kit Brown, and just being able to see how God has raised up and multiplied leaders uh, has really been part of the DNA, not only of Faith Community Church, but it's in my DNA as well. So I just want to say I'm grateful to God for the journey and for what he birthed in me through this reality called Faith Community Church. That has never left us. I want you to know that. It's part of who we are. I love telling the story looking back of what was seemingly unintentional that became intentional. Uh, Looking back, we responded to a call to Charleston. Uh, It was clear for our leadership at that time here at Faith Community to look no further than the men that we were already investing in. And at that time, God pointed our compass to Shane Kohler. And I'm so glad he did. I'm so glad. I'm glad that God brought a Timothy of ours, if you will, that we had mentored to come and be the next pastor of this church. There's no greater joy than to see that kind of multiplication you know, these principles have been part of who I am now 20 years later. In fact, uh, since we've been in Charleston, we've had the privilege to multiply and add and leading and coaching many church plants and even some church replants since we've been there. Do you ever wish you knew then what you know now? Do you ever find yourself there? Well, for me, as we established Centerpoint Church just four years ago, this is my third church plant, around these same principles, this idea of intentional multiplication was clearly part of the journey I wanted to go on. So when we started the church, I started with a teaching pastor, not named Shane, but Steve. (laughs) So Steve Heron came alongside of me, and I became like the Apostle Paul, in a sense, to the Timothy that's going to be set in Ephesus. And now, four years later, Just four months ago, I've had the privilege to hand off that role to Steve, and now he's a lead pastor. And so I'm grateful for the ways that multiplication and addition begin to shape who we are, because that's what discipleship's about. Multiplication for the gospel is what it's about. Centerpoint Church in Charleston, Shane said, I wish I had an opportunity to share a testimony I want to share a little bit about what God's doing, because out of this comes this passage of Scripture where we've been living as a church. Centerpoint Church is surrounded by this idea that we would know Jesus, that we would build community, and that we would engage brokenness. And since we began, we've been engaging the brokenness, both within our own lives and the gospel informing us, but also in the city of Charleston, through mission and also in strengthening other churches revitalizing other churches. 
In fact, I want to show you just a couple of pictures that give you a story of where we are because it will help inform again where I want to go today in the text. One picture is a picture of Citadel Square Baptist Church that's in downtown Charleston. It was established in 1854. It was commissioned by two well-known pastors, J.P. Boyce and Basil Manley. They preached a commissioning service. And there were about 20 families that said, we want to plant a church in downtown Charleston, out of First Baptist Church. This old historic church downtown has been there for 161 years. And of all of its history, it has had its strength, days of strength and days of weakness. Over the past 20, past two decades, it has had its time of weakness. So Centerpoint Church has had the privilege to share space, to be an encouragement, and to come alongside this struggling church of about 45 members in about an 800-seat auditorium. Our church plan has been able to come alongside to encourage their leadership and to walk beside them. Uh, Centerpoint entered into the story by sharing space there for over a year. And you'll see the next picture that will show you our congregation meeting in the sanctuary. And that, that relationship began to grow into a relationship. It began to go in a process that last week, the church of 45 people voted to move forward and to have Centerpoint become the new church, the new reality of this old historic church. That's a huge step for a church this old and a lot of trust to lay at the feet of a church plant that's been four years old on the earth. But what it says is that gospel history continues. What it says is that there is a way by which the gospel and the church that is resilient continues with the message. It's the bride of Christ. In fact, multiplication and addition is a part of everyday life. Even so with families. There's multiplication in addition. I'm on Facebook, and I watch your families, the ones that I'm friends with. And husbands and wives, sons and daughters become husbands and wives, and fathers and mothers become in-laws and grandparents. Speaking of being grandparents, I happen to have another picture to show you of a little girl that was born seven weeks ago. I think that picture's back there. If it's not, then you just have to visualize. There she is. Little Ellie. Carpenter is our first grandbaby. So our family is multiplying, and it's a joyful moment for us. In fact, right now, as I speak to you, uh, my daughter Lindsay, our daughter Lindsay, is over in Costa Rica, and she's doing some mission work there, but she's also, see this picture, with a young man. His name is Adrian. Adrian is a church planter who has been captivated and captured by my daughter's affection, and vice versa. In fact, over in the month, I think it was March, that we were over in Costa Rica, he asked me the question, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? And I've been sweating ever since. But I said yes, and so I believe on this journey that she's there this week that she will be engaged. And the plan for her and for him is to become church planters there in Costa Rica. So the very thing that was birthed in our hearts at Faith Community, to be a part of a community of believers that would walk by faith and be on mission with God and reach into the world, is part of the DNA of who we are. It's part of your DNA. So I'm so grateful for that reality. You see, multiplication and addition is a part of life. Gospel purpose is at the very center of life and relationships. We always add We should always multiply. Sometimes we subtract. 
But we never should divide. In the past 20 years, I have faced many crises and conflicts that I've had to discern and lead myself and my family through. The consistent reality that has enabled me to deal with my own brokenness is the gospel, as it is for you, of leading and leaning into trusting God and loving the church is how the gospel of Jesus informs every part of our life. From my thinking, to my actions, to my motives, to my decisions, to my attitudes. There is so much that pulls against us not to preserve the unity that we have, nor to pursue the unity that we should get. Thanks for showing that picture. That's enough for that little moment that you can get a capture of uh, Lindsay and Adrian. (laughs) I appreciate your prayers for them. You know, the other day, a church planner met with me and said, Craig, how can I pray for you? And this is what I responded because I was reading out of Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. This text we'll look at today. And I said, pray for me that I don't wake up in the morning and simply do ministry. 30 years, I've been doing a while that I simply wouldn't do the Christian life for 35 years now out of what I know or out of what I've experienced, but rather pray that I will not live independent, self-reliant, but rather that I would live out of the gospel every day. Live a life that is dependent on the Spirit and the Word, and a life that is interdependent by practicing the one another's in the body of Christ. I love the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, but it is also the purpose of God for me not to allow my life to begin to get wayward, but to stay centered on who Jesus is. That's our calling. The gospel is not static. It's ever moving and shaping the mind and the will of believers. And so for Paul, he saw not only the purpose of God, but he also saw the power of God in the gospel. So today in the message, I would like to encourage you out of this text because this church that is merging with us is going through quite a struggle. There is disunity among them. They are That vote was not a majority vote. It was a majority vote in the sense that it was chosen, they're going that direction, but it was a split vote, really, in all purposes. And so I've been living out of this text to help guide and navigate them, and I pray that God would use it to help encourage you. The title of the message today is Striving Together for Gospel Unity. Striving Together for Gospel Unity, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Let's look there and read the the text of Scripture. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Will you pray with me? Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would show forth the person of Christ on every verse, that we would see the gospel afresh and anew today. And Lord, that we as a people would walk uh, not only out of here, but from here dependent on you, 
and interdependent on one another. Thank you for the privilege it is to know that the gospel unites us and redeems us. So use this time to strengthen, to encourage. God, thank you for your faithfulness in what you have done and for what you are doing and what you are yet to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The very first thing that Paul calls his readers to after declaring in chapters 1 through 3 of all the realities of the gospel is really calls them to display the gospel through unity in the church. That's the first appeal that he makes after all the incredible deep doctrine of all that salvation is for us. And then a prayer at the end of chapter 3, he goes into chapter 4 at that pivotal point to say, now of all the all the doctrine you've heard, here is the discipline I want you to adopt. And so in verse 3 of this chapter, he calls the church to preserve or to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Interesting enough, he also calls them to pursue or attain a unity through the body of Christ in verse 13. In verse 13, it says there, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the mature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there's two things I want to show you out of this text this morning that I think will be helpful for us as we constantly embrace this challenge to walk in the gospel in all of life because of the gravitational pull against the reality of what God calls us to, to walk not only with him but with one another in faith and in unity and oneness. Two things. First, oneness and gospel purpose. Verses 1 to, th- one to 3 really calls us to this one idea, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So the first thing is oneness and gospel purpose. The second thing I want to show you is in verses 4 to 6, and that is oneness through gospel power. Oneness through gospel power. Verses 4 to 6 show us that we have one God and Father of all, who is in all, through all, over all. That we are united really together as one family. So there is a purpose and there is a power that's at work to make this unity possible. And Paul says, this is the first thing I want you to hear. Now the question is, the word gospel is not in any of these verses. But yet, it is the very foundation and bedrock for every word off of the pages. Chapters 1 to 3 is the whole, if you will, like Romans, almost a treatise of the gospel of how it came about. That we, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, and then God made us alive through Christ. That in chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, that he called us and he made us his own. So the purpose of the gospel, I believe, and the power of the gospel is seen in the way now that we are to practice it together out of that reality. I want to first consider, as we look at this verse in verse 1, the appeal that Paul is making, because it's important that we catch this moment. In fact, sometimes if we miss that moment of introduction of Paul's words, we can miss the real strength, the motive, and the energy behind it. So he says this in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. And so I want to consider, as we look at the idea of the therefore, Paul is pulling the gospel out of chapters 1 to 3, and he's putting it right back again in front of them to say, because of what you have known and heard and believed, now I want you to do something. I am urging you to do this. We know that in chapters 1 to 3 that he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. 
that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he made us to be holy and blameless, that in love he predestinated us, he adopted us, that he made us to the praise of his glory, that he made us accepted in the beloved. He has given us redemption and forgiveness. He has given us wisdom and prudence. He has made all things known to us, the mystery of his will. He has given us the inheritance that he prepared before the world began. He has granted us the Holy Spirit. He has given us resurrection power. He has made us alive from the dead. So therefore, in light of all those realities, Paul says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you. Now this idea of being a prisoner in the Lord is not Paul saying, look, I'm in a bad condition, and the least thing you can do, (laughs) passive-aggressive Paul, right? The least thing you can do is live out of this reality of the gospel, to live in unity with one another, because I'm in these chains. No, he was saying, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. In fact, chapter 6, he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. So he didn't look at his situation as one to say, I'm in a bad way. And out of my bad way, I've got bad will against me, but you've got good will going toward you, so work it. He is saying, listen, I've got a calling and you've got a calling. My calling today is to be bound by these chains. In fact, I like what theologian Edius said, that the iron which lay hold upon his limb had not entered into his soul. In fact, we also find in verse 3 that Paul called himself a prisoner of Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. So that very reality he's calling us to is out of his own calling. And so when Paul was urging, he was urging in the way of entreating us from a place of brokenness. A place of brokenness in the sense that he was in a Captive state by the providence of God, but yet by the brokenness of injustice that was against him. He was also in a place of brokenness in the fact that he was separated from the very church that he could take the teaching of Scripture and then walk it out with them. He couldn't be there. Isn't that where we find ourselves in life? In a place of brokenness. And see, that's the reality of that. If we lose the perspective of our own brokenness, then we don't begin to realize the reality of how great the grace of God is for us and how the gospel calls us in power and in purpose to live out of the reality of our dependence on God. The grace of God that gives us not only life and salvation, but the grace of God that gives us power for every day, living and trust. So he urges them. Now, I want to ask a question as we look at this before we dive into the rest of this passage. Why is Paul's plea so urgent? What is so urgent about this? You might say, well, he's in prison. He might be facing death. That really could be a true reality of what caused him to call for the urging. But I think it's a lot bigger picture than that because he said, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I believe that what made his, Paul, his, his call very urgent was the reality of what weighed in the balance. So I want to point out three things to you in this book that help us to see what made this call of urgency. The first thing I think, if you look at Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 22, that the greatness of Christ to believers and to the world was weighing in the balance. Listen to what it says. That you would know what the immeasurable greatness of his power is toward us who believe. And, verse 22, he put all things under his feet, 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The greatness of Christ to those who believe and to the world. There was this sense from Paul that there's something being put on display through the church and through our lives as believers that's weighing in the balance. Not as if God is only dependent on us to make it happen, but there's something of a greater reality that God's doing than just, hey, get along with each other and be united. There's a bigger picture he's displaying, the fullness of Christ. Now look at another reality in Ephesians three nineteen to 21. We see the glory of Christ... For all generations, he's praying this prayer and he says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think according to the power at work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So Paul was concerned about the reality of the glory of Christ being made known to all generations. Perhaps that was part of his urging and his plea as he laid out these truths before the believers. One more place is in Ephesians 4, verse 13. As we read earlier, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to the fullness of Christ, the full measure of the stature of Christ, the growth and maturity of Christ's body. I like what Paul said in Colossians, that until Christ is formed in you, I am going to labor in pain so that that be a reality. So the urging of Paul was not so much, this is the right thing to do because the gospel tells us, there is a bigger reality behind almost an undertow, a wide-sweeping tidal wave coming in to say, these are the things that call us to this reality, that not only I would beg you to do that, but I want you to do it because of the reality of the fullness of Christ being made known to the world. That really weighs out a lot more than just the fact of calling us to an exhortation. You see, unity is important, but it's not ultimate. What is ultimate, based on the writings of Paul and Ephesians, is living in gospel purpose and displaying the fullness of Jesus to the world. That's what's ultimate to him. And we see that all through his letter. This urgency... This weightiness is something that's been weighing on me lately as we've been walking through this merger with this historic church. Citadel Square is a divided congregation. Last Wednesday when they met, they were presented two proposals. One was to revitalize on their own. That would be the 45 people who are mostly senior adults that would need to find a way to reboot, if you will, the whole foundation of the church. It's almost like planting a church all over again. The other option would be to merge with Centerpoint Church and allow that to be a reality going forward to bring strength, vitality in the gospel. So on Wednesday night, they came together and 45 people walked in the room. And after they walked out, 23 of the 45 said, we're moving forward with a merger. Well, you can imagine, you can imagine the weight and the breach of relationships in that moment, that this church feels divided, disunified. One lady, 95 years old, walks in the room, and her name is Nancy, and she has a picture with her of her great-great-grandparents who were founding members of the church. She couldn't hear well. She came in and said, what's going on here? 
uh, are you trying to give our church away? So she was handed the ballot, and someone was willing to help mark it for her. But Miss Nancy said, no, I want to mark my own ballot. So someone explained to me what's going on. So someone took her aside and explained the two things that were going on and the reality of what meant one way and what meant the other way. Miss Nancy took her pen, and in fact, she already saw that it was marked on one side, and she marked the other side for merger, saying, I want to see the church go forward in faith and in unity. And even though the church is divided, there are people that are saying that the gospel and the fullness of Jesus is the ultimate thing that we're trusting in. So Miss Nancy's vote moved the path forward for merger. So since that point in time on Sunday, I went to the congregation and I shared, I know that you're grieving. This is a hard time for you. We've always been one body because we belong to Jesus, but we've never been one family. So we're going to walk with you in this journey. And so since that point, last Sunday to very today, I've been going to meetings, having coffee in homes with people who don't really want to meet with me, but they're allowing me to talk with them. And my desire and dream and and prayer is that they would look at this text of Scripture with me and say, what can we do to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? And what does that look like going forward? So please pray for that. As we meet each member, as we talk to each family, there's only one way for this to be a reality, and that is for us to be united in gospel purpose. We see Paul's admonition as a result of that, that he says that you are to walk, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Then he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Gospel purpose involves our conduct, our character, and our consecration. I gave you three C's, you're welcome. That'll help you remember I don't know if Shane gives you three C's and four F's or whatever else, but you got them from me today, so you're welcome. (laughs) The conduct that Paul calls them to is to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You see, gospel unity calls us to measure the worthiness of our walk and the worthiness of our calling. Now, what does he mean by calling? We can go back to chapter 1 and look there for the hope of the calling that we've received We look at the text in the context of Scripture. He's talking about the calling of the gospel, that we've been brought into this family, into this faith, into this way in which we're to live. You see, grace is the only thing that agrees with both. It agrees with our brokenness, and it says, we did nothing to deserve God's favor. But it also agrees with God's infinite worth in that God did everything to display his favor to us. I love what he says in chapter 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. To display the grace and for us to embrace the brokenness that we have in order to receive what we did not deserve is this calling that God has given to us. You see, to walk worthy is not to live up to the gospel. It's rather to live out of the gospel. I love what Paul Tripp says. Here's the standard 
Now live up to it. It's not that. It's not live up to the standard, but rather here's the gospel. Now live out of it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John Piper says this, we're to act in a way, if we're walking worthy, we're to act in a way that fits the great value and the glorious nature of God and the gospel and your calling. So walking worthy means to look to God's infinite worth in Christ and to live out of the gospel's infinite grace in the spirit. So think this way, he says, not... I must have faith and love so as to be worth God's favor, but rather God's favor is free and infinitely worth trusting. I like Peter as he says, be diligent to prove his calling and electing you by adding to your faith. Walk worthy of what you've been called, not to, but out of. So our calling is And our conduct is to walk worthy. Our conduct always reveals our character. I had a professor in college say this, and it stuck with me from early days, 1988. Some of you weren't even on the earth then. Dr. Davis said to me, what you believe will determine how you live. He said it almost every lecture. And Dr. Davis is right. What you believe will determine how you live. Our conduct will always reveal our character, what we believe. When the gospel is informing every area of our life, there are characteristics that will demonstrate itself of what we really believe. Now, if you look with me in verse 2, the character of this gospel purpose is clear. And it's clear with these characteristics. Now, why these specific characteristics? If you look at them you will see the portrait and the picture of who Jesus is. And he says it here. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Easy things to do, right? We got it. No. What do you need in order to do that? You need the gospel, the power of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel to be at work in you to demonstrate the person of Christ in this way? Let me ask you this question. How did Jesus come to you? And how did you respond to him? Was it, Lord, I've got it, but you know, if you come into my life, then I'll be good. It's kind of like I give a half and you give a half. No. We came like Lazarus in the tomb, dead, buried, decaying. And Christ came into the grave of our life and said, be alive, come forth. But Christ came not in arrogance or pride or in prowess. He came in humility and gentleness to deal with our brokenness so that we would be led to repentance to believe and put our faith in him. So when we look at these character qualities, it's not no so much a checklist as it is a reality of what the gospel is in you. In humility and gentleness, he says... It refers to the idea of being lowly, a low estate. It is the idea of having a low estimate of ourselves in a very proper sense. Gentleness and meekness refers to the manner in which we receive injuries, a capacity to deal with them gently and compassionately with one another. And boy, do we need that for each other. The church is an amazing thing. 
The church brings people from all different types of life, background. Just take the differences of male and female, and you blend all of that together, and there's going to be conflict. Like Jesus said, conflict's inevitable. Why? Because there's differences among us. But the church is an amazing thing because it brings in all the diversity of all that we have, and it says, be one, follow Christ. And in an amazing way, the church displays that oneness by the way that we trust in Christ and we follow the gospel and we live out of that reality and display the person of Jesus. I love what Jesus said in Matthew 11, take my my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek and lowly of heart. How do you know that you're living out of the gospel in the character of the gospel? Gentleness and meekness. How do you know you're displaying the person of Christ? Gentleness and meekness. You got it down? I don't. But God's teaching me all the time. You see, he who had laid his glory aside, emptying himself, gave us this as an example by which we're to follow. Meekness in the Bible does not mean to be dominated. Meekness was used, really, of beasts that were to be tamed, wild animals, wild horses, When a wild horse was finally tamed, it was brought under control and it became most productive. That's the same thing with meekness, is that God begins to take all that we are and bring it under control of the Holy Spirit, and we live out of that reality. So this essential element of meekness is not easily provoked. It is willing to allow others to say about me the same things I already acknowledge to God by which I am guilty of. It gives me that opportunity to say, as I am broken before God, I come before you, and I lay myself before you because I need the gospel as you need the gospel. So he says, walk in a manner worthy through humility and meekness. Pride is always the fruit of the lie that what I have I didn't receive. Meekness or humility is full of the fruit of the truth that everything is of God. He says, patience and long-suffering It means to be long-tempered, a long-tempered person. The opposite of having a short fuse. Again, we look to Christ and we see his example in the way that even while he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not render insult back for insult, but kept entrusting him to the one who judges righteously. 1 Peter chapter 2 is the calling that we have in this. So how do we display the gospel In its purpose, by pursuing a unity together, it's by the characteristic of demonstrating the person of Christ in these specific qualities. How do you recognize what those qualities are? You go to the text of Scripture and see it there. Which means the transverse, if you don't see that reality in the life of a believer, our calling is to exhort that, to say the gospel of grace is for you and for me, that we would live out of that. All these things lead up to this reality of love. That love begins to pull all those things together. That forbearing love, as he says here in verse number three, that Christian unity doesn't come naturally or automatically. It must be diligently preserved and promoted. We must be committed to the preservation and the practice of unity if we're ever going to be evident to the world about us. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. 
Now, why would Paul put this long list together to say this is the character of the way you display this calling that I've given you from God? Again, because it reflects all that Jesus is, doesn't it? So how is the gospel informing all of your life today through these realities? Where is it that there may be unbelief in your heart that needs to move to belief? The gospel alone can do that. Then he calls them to a consecrated view, a consecrated call, really. He says to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this urgency leads to another call that seems to have a weight behind it. And he says the idea to be diligent. Diligence is important because not only does it display our will toward God in submission, but it also moves us in a path and a place of intentionality. Being diligent means to spare no effort, to make it a priority, to be urgent about it, to make haste. Why is that important? Why? Because there's a gravitational pull, a a gravity, if you will, of depravity to pull us away from the redeeming value and the reality of who the gospel is and who Christ is for us. Now, in this preservation, in this diligence to unity, Paul talks about something that we already have. He says, be diligent to preserve it, Not, not to pursue it, not to try to gain it, but we preserve it. Why? Because we already have unity in the Spirit. We've been all placed into the body of Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that we've been baptized in the Spirit, and therefore the effect of that union together allows for us to have a peace, a bond of peace. That bonding effect, the bond of peace, is the means by which we demonstrate to the world the unity that the Spirit has already created among us, not something that we pursue, something that's already there. Interesting enough that Paul came short by a few qualities of the fruit of the Spirit in this text. Just a few. Temperance. Self-control. Faith. But yet he wraps us up in the reality of how peace and gentleness and humility and love undergird the reality of what it looks like to be one in the Spirit together. It's only the power of the gospel that can create this kind of bond and unite people who were once not a people and aliens and strangers who were without hope and without God in the world, chapter 2 of Ephesians. Isn't it good news to you that we have all we need to bring us together in this thing called the body, the church? Why did Paul begin this exhortation with a call to unity? He did because we know that we came out of a brokenness being separated from God, and we're always going to gravitate back to what's familiar. I like what Warren Wearsby said years ago about the idea that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he talked about us wearing grave clothes, that God met us with grave clothes on. And the grave clothes always fit better because we're used to it. You put on a new suit, put on a pair of new shoes, you start walking it out, Paul talks in the rest of this chapter, and he says, you have to put off the old man, and you put on the new man. Well, I like my old clothes. Rebecca's always getting on to me about the clothes I wear almost every day. I like wearing the same stuff. In fact, I'll wear it twice if it's not too dirty. You know what I mean, guys? You ever done that? Or you order from a menu, and you get the same thing because it's just what you like. It's what you do. That's just 
Familiarity. You kind of go back to what's familiar. You go back to what seems to fit best. But see, the gospel doesn't allow us to go there. It doesn't allow us to drift back. But the reality is, the gravity pulls us. And so Paul urges, and then he says, I want you to be diligent about this, that I want you to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, because that is how the gospel is going to be at work in you, and that is how it's going to be displayed in the world, so the fullness of Christ is seen. So when that does not happen, and we have a breach in our lives, like this church back in Charleston that we're trying now to begin to mend together and help them walk together in unity, the reality is there's a, there's a need for us to display the gospel all over again. That repentance and forgiveness in grace and forbearance and love would be extended to one another. The reality is we have all we need for that to come into full fruition. So that's why in the second half of this passage, he deals with this idea of oneness. Not just oneness through gospel purpose, but now oneness through gospel power. Gospel power. Notice with me in verse 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You see this idea of oneness here? Is it pretty clear to you that he's talking about being united? Seven ones, uh, he's making a point, right? So this oneness idea, what is it and how is it that the gospel has united us together? Well, now we're talking about something that we don't do, but what God has done. And that's the power of the gospel. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So we needed something so powerful to bring us into a place of not only acceptance before God, but to give us a new righteousness, as he says in verse 17 of of Romans. So here, he calls us to this unity. Because we already have something. Unity, as precious as it is, does not come at any price. Unity is crucially important, but never at the expense of the fundamental truths of the gospel. So what are those elements? Well, here they are. One body and one spirit, verse 4, in that we are family. The idea of body and the idea of spirit. In the metaphors that Paul uses in Ephesians, he talks about the idea that we are a building, chapter 2. That we are the body of Christ, chapter 4. That we are the bride of Christ, chapter 5. So this idea of body is a metaphor Paul uses here. That we are in together in a family. We're united together as one household, chapter 2. For, though, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. One family. Just as there is one body, just as the body is one and has many members, 1 Corinthians 12, all members of the body, though many, are one body, and so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of the same spirit. One body, one spirit, united one family. Why? Be diligent to, to pursue And to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Because we're already one family, and God has made it that way. And we have one future, verse 4. We have a hope, the hope of a calling. He's talking about here the hope of the calling that is yet to come. The one hope that belongs to your call. 
that redemption, that redemption that Christ will redeem all things to himself. We have one hope. We have a future together. Verse 5, we have one foundation, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord, Jesus Christ, the possessor and prince of all his people equally. One faith, not referring to the subjective experience of faith, but the faith once delivered to all the saints. The word of God, the truth of God, the gospel. One baptism, identity. Baptized together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you get that sense of reality that the power of the gospel has made these things a reality? It's not something that you and I did to get adopted into God's family. It's not something that we did to try to earn God's favor. It is something that he bestowed upon us in Jesus in the power of the gospel. Lastly, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Verse 6. You see, this idea of transcendence is that he is over all, but yet his eminence in that he is through all and he's in all. This idea, again, of fullness that Paul is talking about here is on display. Paul has in mind not just the church, but really the whole world. Everything that's been created by this one God, that he's united it all together. So why should we practically pursue unity and preserve unity? Because we display all that God is for us. One family, one future, one foundation, and then ultimately the fullness of Jesus. Above all, who is supreme through all, who pervades universal nature, and his agency is seen everywhere and in all, the church, the power and the eminence of God to the world. I'm always taken back by prophets who've spoken with such clarity on the greatness and the fullness of God. And Isaiah was one of those. In closing, his last words of his prophecy in Isaiah in chapter 66, he says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What, he asked the question, what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Verse 2, he says this, And these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But, but, to this one I will look. To him who is humble, who is contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. It seems to be the same call that Paul is giving in Ephesians, doesn't it? That we display the character of the gospel in the way that we respond with a humbleness that by the way that I received it, I did not earn it on my own. In the way that I am lowly because it came to me, I did not deserve it. And then the reality that the word of God and the truth of God is what I must anchor into. That love brings it all together. We must beware of that reality that when we stray away from the reality of displaying the gospel, then we begin to not only create disunity with us and God, but with one another. So our calling here in the scripture is to be rooted and grounded in love. This is not to one that that God looks to has knowledge or to one who has piety or to one who is self-reliant, but to one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at his word. That brings unity because I can serve you. I can prefer to you in love. I can look to you and say that your interests are more important than my own. 
as I talk to these members at the church in Charleston, I'm hearing that from their heart is that they want to see their church restored the way that it was. And they've got a prescriptive way that that should look. And I'm saying to them, we must all walk together in humility and say, what does God want, not what do I want? So I ask you to pray for us in that. I also ask that you pray and be diligent and examine the reality of what does it mean to walk in a unity that the gospel brings to us? How do we display that? How do we recognize it? How do we check it in ourselves so that we walk in a way that is not only worthy of the gospel, that brings about a practical unity between us? I pray that for our church, for faith community. Pray that for our church as we press into the gospel. Why? Because the greatness of Christ to believers and to the world is being displayed. Because of growth and maturity of Christ's body and for the glory of Christ for all generations, we should be diligent. And we should take this as an urgent call to serve Christ and to live out the gospel together. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is pure. And your ways are sure. And so today we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not only instructive for us, but that it is fit for the moment by which we walk. And so today I pray that you would take us to a place where the grace of the gospel, the unity of the gospel, the purpose and the power of the gospel will be on display through us as a people. I want to thank you for Faith Community Church. I'm grateful for the example, for the testimony that this church has of reaching people, making disciples, so that your kingdom would come and your will be done here in Woodstock, Georgia. God, would you have your way with us today as we consider the realities of who you are and all that you are for us. Let us pursue you in the same way that you have pursued us and laid hold of us. And we'll be careful to praise you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.